Hi, this is Tommy LaPuma, and this is Jazz Is Not What You Think. tuning in to another episode of Jazz Is Not What You Think. I'm your host, Michael Fagan, and hope you enjoy a colorful conversation with my mentor, the legendary producer, Tommy LaPuma. And I, God, I remember the first time I met you when I took over uh, at uh, GRP in 90, late 94. Yeah, yeah. Now, what's the chances uh, after a couple of texts to each other that we were going to see each other at that restaurant in, in, the, in D.C.? Uh, ha, that was really uh, incredible. As you think about it, you know, the amount of restaurants in D.C. And, uh, you know, as it turns out, Diana is the one who... Um, uh, you know, told me, oh, we have to go to this place, this piano player is great. Yeah. Which, which it was. Well, you know what, what happened was uh, American Express booked us in the wrong hotel. And we, I was literally on my cell phone walking around K Street. Uh, and it was, as you remember, it was drizzling out that night. And so I wasn't happy. I was in the wrong hotel room. My cell phone pressed in my ear trying to get a, a new hotel. And Zachy, my wife, looks looks over there and she goes, well, there, why don't we just go in and eat? And I see this place, you know, the, the, the prime rib. And I said, it sounds pretty good. I'm in the mood for steak. So we go inside and we're in jeans and, and but covered up by sports coats. So we didn't look too, too terrible. And I'm facing the wall, I guess, because we were wearing jeans. They kind of stuck us in the corner. Uh-huh. <laughs> but uh, I'm listening to this pianist and bass player uh, attentively saying, these guys are really good. Yep. And so I, at the end of our meal, I walked over to them and, and you know, paid them my respects and said, you know, I, I introduced myself and told them how much I love them. And they said, well, do you know who's in the next room? And I said, no. They said, Diana Krall's in the next room. I said, I'm thinking to myself, well, if Diana's there, Tommy's got to be there, too. <laughs> <laughs> and then it was great to run into you. And I yeah. hadn't seen Hugh Masekela in years. And it was great to see <laughs> Diana. Yeah, and Christian and, uh, and Melissa. Yeah, it's Melissa, his wife, I think. Yes, yeah, Melissa Walker. Yeah, and um, but that's not the first time you and I have run into each other at a restaurant. <laughs> no, that's true. And uh, you and you live up north, and I live in Florida, but we seem to like the same restaurants. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> so, uh, I, I thought I'd take take you back and take me back. It's actually, you know, I know we met back in when you became the chairman of Verve. Um, but my introduction to you was a little bit later in your career was from an album, Casino Lights. Wow. And, and yeah, and I remember listening to that album with all the stars that you had on that, on that record from Al Jarreau to the Yellow Jackets, Mike Manieri and, and the like. And um, reading the liner notes, I, I was introduced to you and then I started connecting the dots. That was a really busy time for you, considering all the artists you were producing in contemporary jazz. What was that like? Can you give us a little bit of an insight of how crazy your life was dealing with all those contemporary artists that were really taking off back then? 
Well, it was, uh, I, you know, as, as I think about it, I wasn't really that conscious of the fact that, you know, things were starting to explode in that area. And uh, um, I had gone back to Warner Brothers after being away for about, uh, I guess, about two years. I'd gone to Horizon uh, and, um, and then decided to go back uh, um, to, to Warner Brothers. And, um, you know, I had, by that time, of course, I had, I had known uh, uh, Claude Nobbs very well because uh, when, when, uh, when we had done the, uh, the live album with Al Jarreau called Look to the Rainbow, that was in 77, I think, uh, we had done like four or five different cities in Europe and then taking the best of, of the performances from the four or five venues and put it together, and that was Look to the Rainbow. And that was really Al's breakout album. Mm -hmm. uh, and um, as it turns out, we ended up, we had a week off, so, we, so Pat Raines had the, a great idea to uh, see if, uh, if, you know, if we're going to go anywhere, let's, let's go to Montreux, and this was like in January or February. So it wasn't like, you know, on season by any means. But in any event, it was a great, it was a great week. We spent there and really got to know Claude, uh, spent time at his, at his home, not the one up in the, uh, uh, the, the chalet, but uh, when he was still in his father's mm -hmm. uh, uh, house, uh, his father and mother, I think, were gone by that time, but he had taken it over. And it was above the bakery that, you know, his father originally had, had opened. And, uh, you know, Claude had this incredible 78 collection. And uh, so it was just, a, it was a wonderful week. And so we became very close. So, uh, you know, but let's jump to uh, 81, I think it was. Is that, was that Casino Lines? Yeah, about that time, early 80s. And, and uh, so it must have been like, you know, 80, 81, when we, uh, when, you know, we had decided <clears throat> that we were going to do this, this album with... Uh, all of the, all of the Warner's acts, mm -hmm. and um, and then I had invited a few other things. I'm not sure that I don't think Mike Vignieri was uh, was 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 on Warner's per se, but you know he, you know Warner's uh, 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 Mike. I'm sorry was a, was a close friend, and and you know I I really respected him, still yeah, respect yeah. him as a musician. So so uh, I had him as part of the the the, the whole the overall evening and show. And um, then once we got everything, we, we'd gotten all of these, uh, you know, these, these different performances down. This was, uh, you know, as I think of, I'm thinking this as I'm talking about this, that that album was really as produced, uh, uh, let's say post in post-production, of any live album that I had done, mm -hmm. uh, most of the albums, a lot of post-production work is done in, 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 in live albums, but that one was was the most. I mean, we basically uh, hope I'm not going to blow anybody's image of what they <laughs> what, <laughs> what it was, but it was basically. Uh, I mean, we basically recreated it in the sense that we used the. Uh, the original rhythm sections, and in some cases we used the live performances too, but there were a lot of things that weren't quite right, and 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 then we added things like I added uh, uh, the horns, 
I added uh, some of the background things, uh, background vocal things, mm-hmm. uh, and and then put it together in a sequential order that I felt felt good as a show, mm-hmm. and uh, and that's what Casino Lights ended up being. Yeah, and I think the production of that album is was one of the, I guess I don't want to sound too business like was one of the selling points. I think people back then that were interested in contemporary jazz got this live record that sounded so good. Yeah. And, you know, it was they were, if not popular, they were becoming very popular contemporary jazz artists at the time, all on one live record that sounded so good. And yeah. of course, all great it's players. Really, I have to tell you, it was like, uh, um, <clears throat> it's funny, I haven't really thought about this uh, uh, since, you know, I've got for, for years, <laughs> but but it was really uh, one of those albums where we basically took what was the, you know, the, the rhythm section, we got the best performances of the rhythm section, and as I said, there were some cases uh, where we used the live performance, like, uh, just to give you an idea, the uh, the Randy Crawford, which quite frankly, you know, I think that's one of the best performances of Imagine mm-hmm. that uh, that that I've heard uh, of, of that song, and um, that was that was her. With no, we didn't do anything to that. I mean, basically, that was her. But we did add everything around it, and of course, Russ Ferranti was who's just brilliant. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, you know, was the guy who played. I actually I had. I had been working with, you know, working with, uh, with, with, with the group, with his group, uh, Yellow Jackets, and uh, I asked them to go out uh, uh, with Randy. So they were on the road about a month prior to, to, to us meeting in, in Montreux. So by that time, they were really, uh, you know, polished. They, they, you know, they were, they were together. Well, if, if I recall, didn't you produce their first two records that became their quintessential oh, yeah. records? Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah for the first two records, uh, I did that, and that was I did those two. Yeah, when I when I got back, when I came back from uh, from L.A. Uh, <laughs> from from A and M. I'm sorry. From, from Horizon, yeah. The the um, you know, I remember when the first Yellow Jackets album came out with the with the bright yellow cover of a. Uh, 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 honey, uh, I guess a, 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 a yellow jacket uh, motif, and um, with the hive, rem- with, with the, the hive, yeah, background, yeah. Uh-huh. And I remember being struck again, sort of like Casino Lights, with this very fresh sound. The sound on that record was like nothing I had ever heard before. Well, you know, the thing about it too is that the the I think it was the opening cuts, and now I can't remember the title. That may idle. Yeah, the one where uh, Russ just Russell just plays this outrageous left hand yeah yeah uh, thing that uh, just I mean that basically on that tune that's 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 why I signed them. <laughs> well, you know the um, I've always asked Russ and he never gives me a straight answer. How come you haven't done a solo record? Uh, yeah, so many Yellow Jackets albums and and even I've talked to uh, Jimmy Haslip and. Jimmy has tried to push Russ to doing a solo album. He he just wants to do Yellow Jackets. Wow. But that, I, you know what? That is an interesting. Uh, uh, God, I, 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 
I don't. Even, I think I'm sure I could find out how to reach Russ. I haven't spoken to Russ in so many years, but uh, um, I'd love to reach him. Yeah, well, we'll I'll, I'll connect the dots because I I stay in touch with Jimmy and Russ, and they're two wonderful guys, phenomenally talented, and I think Jimmy too. Jimmy, I I, I love Jimmy. He's just yeah. sweet guy, wonderful player, wonderful bass player. Uh, uh, yeah, they, they, they these guys were great. They yeah. were just great, wonderful individuals as human beings, and and just you know the the, the best. Yeah, well, and and you you tend to have a knack for bringing out the best in those artists, you know, and, and I'll go back a little bit farther. Uh, you know, everyone knows George Benson, but it wasn't until Breezen that Benson became a household name. Mm -hmm. And, and what was it like, you know, to create literally the, one of the classic contemporary jazz records and, and probably uh, certainly Benson's most famous album. Well, obviously it was very satisfying to, you know, end up with a, I mean, that record was number one, Pop, jazz, and uh, 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 R and B, um, all at the same time. I had, yeah. I had a number one record on on all three charts. Uh, so obviously, look, it was it was a it was a great. To tell you the truth, I, you know that winning that Grammy, I, I took me three days to to you know, I, I was three feet off the ground for three days. <laughs> it was really a great. It was a great uh, uh, feeling and. Uh, you know, it was just working with George. It's funny. I don't see him that often, but when we speak, you know, we still always, we just have a great, you know, great relationship. And uh, I must say, uh, and, and it's not, I don't want to say that it's, he's, he's the only person who's done this, but, but there isn't a, an article, and it's not like I've read every one of his articles, but the thing is, there isn't an article I've read that he's done where he hasn't uh, 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 been very kind to me. Yes, and, 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 and in fact, I interviewed him once, and he talked about you. Yeah, I, I must say, I, I, uh, uh, I'm not just flattered, but uh, um, you know, touched by by his, um, uh, you know, he he just never forgot, and believe me, I never forgot. You know, you know, I was a I was a big fan of George Benson's. Even before I knew who he was, 1962 or three, I was at the jazz workshop in, in uh, San Francisco in North Beach. And I was just, you know, hanging. Uh, uh, I was I was a promotion man at the time, 62, 63. And uh, I, I was up there. I had some friends who, who had moved, a disc jockey friend of mine, Bobby Dale, who had moved up to San Francisco. And at the time... Cost it was nothing to go up to San Francisco. I think I'm not sure PSA started, but when PSA was was going on, it was like twelve dollars each way. <laughs> you know, it was nuts. So I would go up there all the time. And one Sunday afternoon, <clears throat> my friend uh, uh, who was ended up being a disc jockey, we met his promotion man, uh, Abe Cash. He was known as Vaco. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, he had a, a, a show called Lights Out, mm -hmm. and um, and uh, he was on. The station that Tom Donahue started, the FM station that Tom Donahue started, and uh, but at this time anyway, he said, "Hey man, we've got to go by uh, uh, Jack McDuff is is playing uh, the workshop," and uh, I said, "Man, yeah, most definitely." So we went by, and and it was the quintessential Jack McDuff trio. You know, it was Jack it was uh, oh god that outrageous drummer that he had. 
used to he he sat on a bicycle seat, man. I can't remember <laughs> this guy's name now. But uh, and there was this young, very quiet, didn't have any idea who he was, guitar player, who blew me away. I just couldn't believe it. And later, I, you know, afterwards, we went back. We said hello to Jack, and uh, uh, I just when it was just in passing, he said, "Oh, this is a." I'm a guitar player, George Benson. I said, oh, hi, how you doing? And that was it. And it wasn't until a few years later when he signed to Verve and Creed uh, did the first few albums with him on Verve. Uh-huh. And he, he, uh, uh, there was this great album that he had done where he was, the album cover was him sitting on a red leather chair in a, in a den or something. Uh-huh. And um, um, Herbie Hancock was on it. And... Uh, it just, I said, wow, this guy is definitely someone to be, to keep my eye on. Or just not, not I wasn't even thinking, it wasn't even a question. I wasn't even producing in, right. in, in, in well, 65. I didn't start producing until like around 65. Right. <coughs> Excuse me. So, um, you know, I was blown away. And then, of course, afterwards, you know, when, when Creed, uh, uh, Creed did all the albums on Verve, and then he ended up starting CTI. And I was, of course, a fan of all of those. And then Al Schmidt and I were in San Francisco. Al was working with the Jefferson Airplane. I was working with Dan Hicks on Hot Lakes. But we were splitting a, a hotel suite at the Miyako Hotel in, uh, in San Francisco. And we were on the way back. We had gone to a Chinese restaurant in North Beach and, and, uh, uh, in Chinatown and um, heading back to, uh, to the hotel. And just by chance, we, we passed the Keystone Corner, which was, you know, Todd. Um, sure. Yeah, Todd Barkin's place. And it said George Benson. And I said, man, stop the cab. You know, just <laughs> stop the cab, dead stop. Got out, paid the guy and went in. And uh, the first they <laughs> George actually was still his own roadie. He was he brought his I saw him brought his amplifier up on the stage, you know, set up and everything. And the first song he did was he sang. Summertime. Wow. Now, I had missed, for some reason or other, I don't know how, I had missed, he had done one cut on uh, here on uh, the uh, the other side of Ivy Road. Uh, mm-hmm. He had done Here Comes the Sun. Some way or other, I missed that. I don't know how. Uh, uh, and then I had missed, this one was on Columbia, the Summertime, which is on an early Columbia album called Benson Burner. Mm-hmm. I missed it. So I had, I had no idea that he had, that he could sing. So I said, wow, this guy could really, he's, this guy's great. And of course it stuck in my mind, jumped to, you know, a few years later, 76 or yeah, 70, late 75 or 76, uh, Bob Krasnow, my, my, my partner at Blue Thumb, and by this time we had both joined Warner Brothers, he called me and he said, man, I got a, Marriage made in heaven. I said, what are you talking about? He said, well, he said, uh, I, I just got a call. Uh, we could sign George Benson. Are you interested? I said, man, are you kidding? Yeah, absolutely. So cut to the chase. We ended up having this meeting. It was uh, a George and his uh, manager at the time. And and uh, the first thing I asked him, you know, we sat down and introduced each, uh, each other. I mentioned that I met him briefly a few years before that. But I said, um, how come you've never sang on your albums and he said uh well he said you know uh he's a creed was really trying to make me like the next uh uh, uh oh, 
God, this is unbelievable. This That's is what happens. Eighty years old, man. You know, things start to small, th small things start to West Montgomery. He's, yeah. he's trying to make me like you know he wants me to be the next you know, West Mont Montgomery and uh, and and I said, well, gee, I said, you know, I heard it. I told him the story about hearing him at, at the Keystone Corner, and I thought he was great. And I said, uh, you know, I I definitely think that you know you should be singing uh, more. And uh, so you know, we do the album and everything. And about a year later, after the thing's a smash. It was Mo Austin's 50th birthday, and we're sitting at the bar at, at, at uh, Mo's party. And, and George turned to me, and he said, you know, brother, he said, you probably don't remember this. He said, but when we first got together, first thing you said to me was, uh, how come you don't sing on your albums? And right then I said, I want this guy to produce my album. <laughs> so it's amazing. Now, you know, you don't know sometimes you say something, and you have no idea what effect it's going to have on someone. Sure. Sure. Well, you know, the uh, Pat Metheny once told me uh, we were talking about Benson and he said, uh, I said, what do you think of George? And, you know, I, I knew that he, he loved his playing, but I loved his response. He said, George is probably one of the greatest jazz guitarists ever. But if I had a voice like his, I probably would never pick up the guitar. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's, that's funny. That, yeah. That's great. Well, I, I'll tell you something, though, man. I got a lot of I got a lot of heat from the jazz police on that album. Of course, you did, <laughs> baby. It was no. It was. I mean, I'll never forget. I went to a meeting. I went to a uh, a. Uh, it was a Neris meeting, and uh, and uh, Dan. Um, oh God, isn't that terrible? Actually, I, I really respect this guy as a writer. He's great, Dan. Olette? No, no, he writes. He, he wrote for uh, no, not for the Village Voice. He wrote for. Uh, or for downbeat, I think he wrote for downbeat. You see, he 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 teaches at a college out in New Jersey now. Oh, Dan Morgenstern. Dan Morgenstern, and so Dan Morgenstern was there, and then the guy uh, who who um, um, who who wrote for the for the um, Village Voice, who was a little more toxic. Um, <laughs> Gary Giddens. Gary Giddens, thank yeah. you. <laughs> Slowly, I turn. Uh, um, who I also respect as a writer. In fact, sure. the Bing Crosby album, uh, the Bing Crosby album, the Bing Crosby book that he wrote right. was brilliant, yeah. you know? Yeah. Uh, but, you know, it's it's amazing how uh, these, it's just weird to me how you could be, you know, you're just in this, this narrow uh, road or alleyway that people sometimes take where they're just completely, um, uh, Un incapable of of listening to anything outside of that that area, you yeah. know. And yeah. and uh, and I, it's amazing because it's not even a question of whether he's prejudiced against whatever. Man, you know, and, and of all people, you know, Ellington is the one who said, you know, there's only two kinds of music, good or bad. Absolutely. Now I must say I'm not. This could uh, this could shock uh, some. I'm, I'm not that big of a fan of the quote unquote smooth jazz area. Sure. Uh, uh, and, and more so because as time went on, I get the feeling that it just became repetitive. Mm -hmm. You know, I never felt anything fresh coming out of this area, you know? And once someone once said to me, after that, with a point where I started, you know, not, not particularly 
that you know crazy about a lot of the things that I had been hearing, hearing in the smooth jazz area. He said, "Well, you know, you're you're the you're the father of that area." And I thought, "Well, shit! If I th ever thought I was going to get to this, I don't think I I would have started." You know, <laughs> but uh, um, it's just a weird how it's it just got to the point where it's so uh, premeditative. It's like I, I could. Uh, you know, you can hear, you know, you, you just know where where someone's going with a solo. You know where someone's going with a melody. Um, sorry? So predictable. It's predictable. <clears throat> yeah. you know? and, uh, and and I think it's, it, it, uh, it didn't help. It didn't help uh, uh, jazz and it, it didn't help people who, you know, loved music. Like, let's say even... Joe Sample. Joe Sample gets a lot of heat. I think, Jesus Christ, I can't think of, I'm trying to think of one album that Joe has done where I could say, oh, it sounds kind of sort of, you know, repetitive. It sounds sort of like, you know, something. Joe was like one of the most original, of course. just a wonderful, wonderful player. And, um, but he got heat, you know? Well, you know, you, Tommy, you're, you're, uh, you and I are definitely on the same page. The, I started Jazz's magazine, right? Because I loved contemporary jazz. I loved what you were doing back then. You know, you were an inspiration to me to say no. You know, there. If you look at an artist like David Sanborn or Mike Manieri or Joe Sample, as you mentioned, that did more contemporary jazz, they don't like to be associated with smooth jazz. Not because the genre itself is horrible, but because of some of the other types of music that are lumped into smooth jazz. They don't want to be part of that. And they kind of run from it in a way. But, but you know, in many ways, you know, you mentioned like Dan Morgenstern and Gary Giddens. They have written for me in the past. And they're excellent writers, excellent critics. They certainly know their music. One of the things that always sort of bothered me, if you would, about some critics is that you can't knock an album for what you believe the album should have been or what you believe that artist should do. Yeah. You should critique it based on whatever you believe that did viscerally to a listener when they listened to that album and what the artist was trying to convey. And it's sort of like, you know, the Nora Jones thing, who obviously took a lot of heat in the beginning mm -hmm. uh, because everyone said she's not a jazz artist. Well, she never went out there and said, I'm a jazz artist. Well, you're but, right. You're right. But it, it happens all the time. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, um, I think that, look, when you look at some, like, take, for instance, like Jane Monheit. Sure, sure. Now, Jane, Jane Monheit, I think, is a wonderful singer. She's got a great set of pipes. And uh, <laughs> I can really get uh, some heat on this, but uh, I think she was miscast. Yep. Uh, I, I believe that if she would have taken the route to theater, and gotten in, uh, involved in Broadway, she could have been one of the big names on, on Broadway in regard to uh, uh, Broadway musicals. Because she had, that's where her chops really lay. Not that she can't sing uh, a jazz tune or not that she, you know, it's not, not like, you know, oh wow, what is this chick doing singing these songs? Nothing like that whatsoever. Because I think she's, she's, she's top of the line, man. Yeah, but yeah. but I think that uh, you know some people got pulled into this area for whatever reason, whether it was management or whatever, and and uh, um, 
it's you know, it's it's it was in, in her case. I think it was unfortunate. I I I, I, I haven't heard anything from Jane in a while. I, it's really a, it's unfortunate because you know she had she had great. She really had great. She has, you know, as far as I know, great chops, and uh, uh, just uh, sort of got, you know, misled. Well, I can tell you that it's funny that you mentioned that. She is on our current cover of Jazz's magazine. No kidding. The covers uh, we did another fun cover with her. <clears throat> it's called Lady Jane, and we. Um, we actually talk about her moving into a direction and taking more control of her career. Mm -hmm. So it, it, I don't know if you remember, but years ago when she was just coming onto the scene, um, we were doing a photo session with her in New York. I asked her to show up to the photo session in a leopard leotard. And uh -huh. she was like, I have no idea what you're doing, but I said, you got to trust me on this one. She came to the photo session. She wore a leopard leotard. Um, and we got this beautiful shot, photographer out of New York, Tom McGough. And we just ran on the cover with uh, very little cover type, Me Jane. And, oh. and the logo, the Jazz's logo was done in grass. So it really had that Jane and Tarzan look. Yeah. And it really kind of launched her onto the scene. And then we had such, like you, such high expectations of her as a singer yeah. I would have assumed that she would have really gone in another direction and come what 20 something years later, hopefully she's finding that direction. Gee, I, I hope so. I, I, I don't, you know, it's funny. I've never even met her. Oh really? Uh, no, no, I've never met her, but uh, I always really had high respect for her as, as, as an artist and as a, and every, and, you know, any mutual friends that we have have had nothing but, Wonderful things to say about it. Christian McBride loves her. Yeah, uh, uh, and um, uh, you know it's uh, very interesting that uh, um, you know uh, we're we're in the talking stages right now. We being um, uh, Michael Feinstein and and myself uh, are doing the complete works of George and Ira Gershwin. Wow, and uh, and um, I I definitely would would want to. Uh, reach out to Jane if, if this thing um, uh, does happen. I mean, I'm, we're, still, we're, we're in the, uh, uh, you know, just the beginning stages of, uh, of this. And, um, but I think that she, you know, she, she could, she would be a, a you know, cause we're going to, obviously we're going to do some, some uh, 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 duets. That's great. That's great. I think she'd knock it out of the park. Oh, absolutely. I hope you're enjoying this episode of jazz is not what you think with Tommy LaPuma. Be sure to share these with friends, write a review, and like us. And while you're at it, check out bestjazzmagazine.com and get a subscription to Jazz Is. That includes 12 monthly digital editions, 8 limited edition compact discs, curated music that you can stream to any device, and quarterly award-winning print magazine all with your one-year subscription to Jazz Is at bestjazzmagazine.com. Thanks for listening. One of the things I didn't uh, uh, elaborate on a little bit is one of the reasons why I found myself going back and, and immersing myself in, in everything from Marty Shaw to, uh, uh, by the way, it's a great book, not that easy to find, called The Trouble with Cinderella, which is a book he wrote. 
on his life and, and whatnot. But the trouble with Cinderella. I will get that. It's called. And, uh, but one of the reasons that I, the thing that, that I it seemed had to go back to and had got, have gotten so deeply immersed in is just that it was the swing era, you know, yeah. and, and like, you know, people could swing, but then there's some, you know, there's a difference between, well, the best, one of the best examples I can give you is that uh, Natalie did something with, with, I would rather not get into who it was or whatever, but it was like a night of swing. Uh, and and uh, with sort of you know c- contemporary guys, yeah, and, so, yeah. and she said he said hey she said you know I want you to come with me I said yeah great we'll have dinner afterwards great so afterwards you know we're having dinner and she said what do you think I said well it was you know it was really nice it was nice and everything but you know there's a difference between someone like like you know Jeff Hamill let's say and I, and, and and his sense of swing. And, and, and a more contemporary uh, 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 drummer who, who, you know, approaches swing, you could definitely feel there's, there's a difference. Yeah. And there's just something about, about that, that whole period. Man, and that's from Basie and Woody uh, to, to, you know, Artie Sean, Ben Webster and Johnny Hodges and Prez. And, I mean, it's just, they, they swung their asses off. And you put that shit, you put the shit on, and the minute that that music comes on, it's it it it's like getting on a magic carpet, and it just takes you away. Yeah, yeah. Well, I always I always looked at it as that that was real. They felt it. It was it was from the heart. It wasn't manufactured. One of the, the we I was walking out uh, some crazy exit from the White House with. Um, with Aretha and, and Christian was walking around about the same time and Christian turned to me and he said, I don't know if we'll ever be able to do this again at the white house. And he, he was really referring to the political climate <laughs> and yeah. uh, we all, we all, it was a somber departure from the white house. Exactly. Exact. It was a somber departure because you really have the sense that um, this could be, you know, the, at least in, in my lifetime. Okay. Uh, I, I'm like, look, please, don't, you, you definitely don't want to get into politics. <laughs> yes, so, let's, let's so, avoid that. <laughs> I'm so depressed about this whole thing because you know Obama is my hero, man. Yeah. I, I, uh, and and I, <laughs> I was born as you know disappointed as I was with when Howard all came up. I was even more disappointed over the fact that I didn't get a chance to meet him yep. because this guy, is my estimation, he's he's a cat. He's one of the cats. You know, he's like just he's a regular. Guy, yeah. I was reading this um, article. It was in the New York Times uh, 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 this past Sunday, which had some interesting things. The most interesting article, I, and, and if you haven't read it, you must get it, is the Atlantic Monthly that uh, Jeffrey Rosenberg uh, uh, wrote. Okay. Uh, I could send it to you. Actually, I, I saved it. Oh, I love to read it. Uh, it's it's just incredible. I mean, it's as close as you're going to get to this gentleman's chessboard uh, prior to his, you know, uh, uh, tenure being over and, and someone else taking over. But I think Jeffrey Goldberg is the guy that's going to write the book. I'm sure of it. But it's, it's brilliant. But this thing that was in the Sunday Times, uh, he talked about how he, being Obama, talked about how uh, 
the fact that he really didn't get into the big political picture until later on in his life, and he had a chance to like sort of live like a normal human being for the first part of his, you know, just as a, 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 a councilman and whatever else that he was in Chicago. And uh, it gave him a, a chance to uh, live like, you know, most everyone lives. Yeah. And uh, uh, that was probably one of the things that, that made him as, you know, just a normal guy in in that in that uh, uh, role as president. Yeah, you know, I was I, I, you and I communicated a little bit uh, a couple days ago, uh, and I, I would have loved for you to come with us over to the St. Regis where Jamie Cullum and his wife Sophie, Pat Matheny and his wife Latifa, and Christian and his wife. We went up, and we were just talking about uh, the evening and just catching up on things. But one of the things that was said by everyone about the president. He took the time to meet every musician and really shake their hand and talk to them as if they were having a conversation. It wasn't just going through the motions. Absolutely. In fact, Diana was touched by it because she said, oh, wow, he came up to me and he, you know, he hugged me and uh, talked about, you know, the last time that he saw me. And uh, he's just, he's so personable, you know, he's just, uh, I'll tell you, man, I, this, the last, I, I will never ever forgive the Republicans for what they did to this oh, guy. me neither. You know, and I'm not, listen, everybody makes mistakes. And I'm not yes, saying sir. that the guy was like, you know, squeaky clean. There wasn't anything that he didn't do that he could have done otherwise. But believe me, what I'll tell you, man, you, you add them up. This is the best, as far as I've been served, I haven't seen anyone like this guy in that, in that uh, spot in my lifetime. Yeah, you know, all the guys that I'd say, yeah, I got great respect. You know, FDR, even Truman, you, you know, Kennedy. Uh, uh, I mean, even Carter. You know, uh, uh, but um, this guy was special. Yeah, and even the speech that he gave before the White House uh, jazz show, uh, yeah. yep. it was it was heartwarming. Actually, we're going to run a we're going to run it in the uh, in the next issue of Jazzes because it was such a beautiful. Just such a beautiful discussion about jazz and what that means. Oh. Um, speaking well, of Diana, oh, go ahead, go ahead, Tom. He knows music. Yeah. Now, this guy knows music. I was going to say, speaking of Diana, um, I know we obviously met in the Verve days, but I actually, I don't know if you remember this, back, I want to say it was like 1992. I went to the five spot and you were there. And Diana was doing a showcase. Uh-huh. And uh, that's when you and I met. And I had, you know, I'd heard of Diana. She was on a Canadian label. I actually had one of her earlier albums. Right. And um, I, I, I walked up to you and I, we, were, we were just kind of talking. And, and you kind of looked at me like, yeah, what do you think? <laughs> and I, I would say, yeah, I, I think she's going to be one of the biggest artists in jazz. And it was funny because we, all of us who were introduced to her, not as early as you, but early, saw this woman that had the voice, the chops, the look, the whole package. And I hate to, you know, put it in such terms, but it was so clear that she was going to be a big star way before she was. Oh, yeah. And look, I, you know, I have to tell you, you know, credit where credit is due. 
when I walked in that door at GRP, uh, um, you know, um, both uh, Larry and Carl Griffin, you know, they, they had basically, they had signed, they had, I don't know whether or not they had signed her or they had picked up her first album. I'm not <laughs> sure about that part. But nonetheless, you know, and they were the ones who played her for me. And what this is really, this is really interesting because, you know, it just shows you how that fine line that you walk down when you're, when you're uh, dealing with talent and, and which way things go. Uh, they played me the, the album. They played me the, a few cuts from the, from the uh, I can't remember the first, uh, the, 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 the um, I can't remember the name of the first album, Stepping Out or something, was it something like that? I can't remember, the one that was out in Canada. Um, but in that, sorry. Was it, was it the first one on Impulse? No, 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 no. First one was in, was was uh, on a Canadian label. Oh, just in time. Just in time. That was it. it was the, well, just in time was the name of the label. Yeah. Right. The label. I think it was called Stepping Out. Anyway, I think you're right. I think it was Stepping Out. And, and uh, so they played me a couple of cuts, and uh, I wasn't too impressed. Uh, and I thought because it, it sounded like a, maybe a step or two from. Uh, I think I could have changed my mind 10, 15 years later after listening to it. But at the time, it sounded almost uh, Holiday Inn-ish. <laughs> and, and, uh, um, but thank God, I just, all I said was, do, you know, do you have anything else? Uh, uh, and, and Larry said, well, he said, you know, I've got this thing. She did, she did a video. She did a TV appearance on, on BET. And they played me this thing where she just she sang down. I think she sang "Body and Soul," just her and the piano singing "Body and Soul." And when I tell you, man, it was like something came out of the out of the screen and grabbed me by the neck, and I I I just said, "Wow, that is." And that was it. I saw that that video with just her and piano, and and that that did it for me. I said, man, this, this girl's got it. <laughs> and, and that was it. Yeah. yeah. She's, she's special. Now, you uh, know, there, you, you introduced me, um, back in the, in the GRP days to an artist that I never heard of. I knew you produced their first couple of albums. You had actually, I had asked you if you had, I couldn't find them. So you had sent me, I don't know if, whether they were some inventory you had or your personal copies. Uh, of the story. Oh wow! Yeah. Well, that, actually, I ended up signing her to uh, to Blue Thumb when I started Blue Thumb at uh, uh, you know at GRP when I started the label up again because Universal had bought. We sold to ABC back in 1974, and then ABC ended up selling to, to Universal, so Universal owned the brand. <laughs> so I started, and and I the first one of the first albums uh, I think was Doctor John. And, and Jonathan Brooke, uh, um, because I had signed them at Electra. Right, the story records. And then they broke up, and, uh, uh, and, and Jonathan did her first record, which was a wonderful record. Plum, I think it was. Was that Plum? Yeah, Plum, exactly. She is, um, I, I've, I've told friends of mine in the business and very talented artists about her. And almost every time when I send someone who I really, I trust their judgment, opinion, uh, comment about music, 
they always say the same thing. What a wonderful singer, songwriter, musician. How come she's not huge? Yeah. She just never, well, she never got a break. And, you know, it was like, you know, she didn't have any break. She didn't have a breakout song or whatever, you know, that came out. I was going to just segue quickly into, um, you know, over your career, you have produced a wide array of artists, you know, from, I, I remember the Sandpipers to Dr. John to, as we mentioned, Jonathan Brooke, certainly Diana, um, to Michael Bublé, to Dan Hicks. You, you have a seemingly a, a Jazz Jones, but you stay, you know, sort of global. You, you don't just stay in jazz. No, no, I, I, you're right. No, I, I don't because, uh, I love all kinds of music. I mean, there isn't any kind of music, you know, uh, uh, that the good, you know, the great part of part of any of these genres that I don't love. I mean, including uh, 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 what do they call the Irish uh, uh, Celtic? Celtic. I love I love Celtic music. Uh, you know, have you ever seen Veronica Guerin? The sure. Movie? I mean that that soundtrack kills me. Yeah. Uh, so it's like you know I I can't I can't get into any of these things where it's like oh no it's not you know it's this or it's that or whatever if it's good like uh, another one like the the soundtrack to uh, Brother We're Out There mm -hmm. outrageous I loved it. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's like you know if it's good. I, you know, I love it. Now, I'm to tell you the truth, my biggest Jones over the past year or two have been going back to sort of my, you know, let's say my early days of, of listening and, and people that I hadn't heard everything by, but I am just really completely immersed in it now, is everybody from Artie Shaw to, uh, uh, you know, Jesus, Ben Webster, uh, Johnny Hodges. These, look, Michael, these were the guys. <laughs> these were the guys. And, and, you know, one of the things that disturbs me a little bit, and, and I don't, it's to, a little too much out of hand, I think, for, for anybody to take a, a reverse on this, is just the whole manner in which musicians become introduced both to music, how their careers and how they get started the way it was then. And, and again, I know you can't, it's not like I, I'm thinking that we should go back to 50 years ago, 60 years ago and, 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 you know, redo these. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking, I'm talking because you, you can't go backwards in time. But the point is, it's just that now you've got everybody and his brother going to these schools. You know, you've got Berkeley, you've got, and everybody is going, and, and, and they're, they're, so the first thing that these kids are getting are, are the rudiments. It's like, you know, scales become more important than 
And not that scales aren't important right. because they are. If you, got, you want to learn changes and all that stuff, you, you've got to you got to get you. But all of these guys, man, from Ben Webster, all these brilliant, you know, geniuses from that period. You know, they didn't have any formal training. They learned it. They, in other words, they just they learned it on their own. And very interesting, man. This is very interesting. It just so happened that I I. I uh, uh, rode the train back to New York with uh, Joey Alexander, wow. his parents, and um, and I just I, I look. That's a freak of nature. Let me tell you, I, I just and I'm just talking about his plane. I, you know, this kid. He's a lovely kid, just very sweet, very shy. You know, um, but I, I at one point I asked him. I said, you know, because they live in, in 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 the village, in the in New York, and um, I said, where do you go to school? And he said. I, I go to school on the internet, and and I the rest I just sort of put together, and that is that his parents obviously were are smart enough to realize that they have this brilliant child who is playing like you know any adult twenty five years is is senior, uh, um, and what so why I mean other than him getting the rudiments. Uh, reading, writing, arithmetic, you know, uh, that, that kind of things. What does he need to waste his time in uh, 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 doing anything other than what it is that he's destined to do? Mm-hmm. You know, and, uh, um, you know, you, I it just, it, now I understand also that, that, that it, it is, that the dynamics aren't the same. And by that I mean, you don't have the amount of clubs that you had back in those days. You didn't have the interaction between people. You didn't have the big bands uh, today that was such a breeding ground for, for all of these people to get their chops and, and to, you know, get their own style. And that's the thing that bothers me, I think, the most, is that with the exception of a few people, you know, I can't tell one fucking guy from the other. <laughs> I can't tell, you know, it's like... Uh, and, and, you know, you go back and, and, and you think, man, all I had to hear was, you know, two bars of Zoot Sims, man. I knew it was Zoot Sims. You know, Getz, uh, uh, Ben Webster, any of these guys. The minute you heard him, you knew who it was. Yep. They had, they had, they had a style. Diana Krall, you know, man, you, two, you hear a bar and you know it's Diana. Absolutely. So it's like that's so important, and and uh, I don't know why, I don't know exactly what the deal is. Why everybody wants to sound like everyone else? You know, I'm not even quite sure whether or not it's a, 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 a conscious effort that they want to sound like someone else. I remember when when Sanborn first became, you know, a, a household name. Well, not a household name, but it became you pretty know big. pretty big. He called me one night and he said, I, I just saw myself play on, uh, on the Tonight Show. And uh, uh, it was, and I'm not sure who it was, but whoever it was, sounded, there were like four, four people who sounded like David Sanborn. <laughs> now, why, why would you want to, you know, you would think that you would say, oh, man, I, I want to get my own, I want to get my own sound. I want to get my own way of of expressing myself so that like, you know, I'm going to stand out, make your mark, make your mark, you know, you know, <laughs> Tommy, you told me something 
oh gosh, maybe 20 years ago. And I actually, I've used that quote, not just in music, but as you know, in my other life in medicine. Mm -hmm. And we're talking about artists, just like we're talking about now and how some of them became solo artists and, you know, really didn't have it in them to be a solo artist. I mean, they're, they're, they're a decent player. They can play in a rhythm section, but solo artists, as you know, better than anyone, it's a completely different animal. Right. And you told me, cause we were talking about an artist and you know, the, the nuances of signing an artist and I, I'll, I'll, I'll leave his name out, but you know, one of the things that came up with, with, with my partner, he said, yeah, you know, he's such a nice guy. And you turned to me and you said, give me a prick who can play. Yeah. <laughs> and, <laughs> and what what's what I loved about that yeah, time. That's not an original line. Uh Woody Herman said that originally. Right, but but the way you said it, uh, I literally, you know, there are times where I'll, I'll be dealing with uh you know some subspecialist physician and someone'll say, Oh yeah, I love going to him, he's such a nice guy, and I'm like, give me a prick who can play. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's the truth, man. You know, it's like, you don't have to live with this person, man. You know, you're just like, you, you just want to capture what it is. And look, it's the whole deal with what it is that I did. And, you know, to, to every so often I get the chance to do it now is to capture someone's uh, uh, talent, to capture a, a performance, you know. The whole deal, whatever it is that you do when you walk into a studio with an act, and a lot of it has to do with pre-production, because pre-production has to do with picking the material, making sure that the structure, the structure meaning just how you're going to approach it, and whether or not you're going to, you know, how many, solely where it's going to be, all of that stuff. You get all of that stuff down. Once you get that down, and you walk into the studio, the most important thing is that you make it comfortable in that room. And and get it to the point where they forget where the fuck they are, <laughs> and 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 they just and one, at one point they're gonna drop they're gonna drop you a killer, you know it's gonna come out. And as long as you got that tape, you got that machine running, and you get it, that's all that counts. So, so, so whether or not you have to convince someone, which you know which is the best performance, or when the magic I come I always refer to it as magic because it is you know it's just like when that magic drops out. You know, you got to be ready. You have to be aware and, and, and uh, you know, cognizant of that moment. So with, with, with all that experience, Tommy, with produce so many hit records, um, what was it like walking into the studio to do Paul McCartney's record? Well, it was, see, by the time we got into the studio, I, you know, Paul and I, we, we had been talking for a year, year and a half. Uh, uh, so it wasn't like something that just happened over a period of a few months, and and I you know I, I went I went over and spent time at, you know at his studio and, and and his house and whatnot with you know in East Sussex, um, just going through things. The first time I, I went there, I went there with about forty or fifty songs that I thought let's you know try these, and I brought um, Tamir um, Handelman. Handel? Oh God! I tell you, he's, Tamir is a great piano player who uh, plays with John Clayton with the John Clayton band. Oh yeah, and, uh, uh, it's an Israeli cat, lovely guy. Uh, and well, the reason I brought Tamir, I, I, as it turns out, I, I didn't. I, I, no, I didn't use him on the album, but 
because I ended up with Diana. But the reason I, I took Tamara is because Tamara could play at the drop of a hat. Whether you, you know, if you want to try something in C sharp and uh, or G G flat, you know, whatever you, he could just go from G sharp to you know C sharp in in two seconds. So and the reason is because I wanted to try all these songs. So by the time I left, I left with about ten out of the fifty that I thought you know were possible. And then we kept looking and looking. By the time we went in, we went in with about 18. We ended up with, I think, 15 that we um, that were usable. Uh, but the first day, when we're, the first day in, and Paul is such, you know, Paul, again, look, I, I don't know what it would have been like if, if he didn't like the vibe or whatever. I think if he didn't like the vibe, we wouldn't have gotten there. Right. So, so, uh, and, and it wasn't until really toward the point when we were about ready to make the, the major jump and, and, and go in and start. And I brought up uh, Diana. And at first he wasn't keen on it because he thought that I was talking about a duet album. And uh, I said, no, Paul, I said, I'm not talking about, you know, in other words, this isn't a, uh, Paul McCartney, Diana Krall album. This is your album. I'm just talking about her uh, uh, copying for you, you know, accompanying you. And then he got he got it, and he, he said, uh, yeah, yeah, let's try. So I I, uh, I called Diana. Of course, she was, like, really excited about it. And then we went and spent um, uh, an afternoon at his apartment in, in the city and uh, just playing and, and him singing some stuff, and, and he felt very comfortable with it. So that's when we decided, boom, let's get the rhythm section, let's go in. And uh, so the first day, though, we did, um, the first song we did was uh, Cheek to Cheek, which we ended up not using. Mm -hmm. And it was a little shaky, you know, and I was saying, you know, everyone basically knew, I think, including him, that it wasn't quite, you know, uh, 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 right and uh, but there was a song that 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 I had suggested uh, that was from Guys and Dolls that wasn't in the film but it was in the brought in the in the the, uh, the show. It was called "More I Cannot Wish You," mm -hmm. and uh, it's a song where the father is singing to the uh, to the daughter. Uh, you know what? Of course, what what he had hopes for her and so all of that kind of stuff. And I think he not only the style of the song. Uh, 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 found you know he he found a pocket for it, but he um, I think because he had a young daughter, mm -hmm. it just it you know probably hit a spot in him, mm -hmm. and uh, so and I and I remember that you know when we did it when we tried just running it through that I said yeah this 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 one's definitely going to work so the second I, the second song I called was more I can I wish and it came out great mm -hmm. and that just snapped everybody yeah great fantastic and you know from that point on we were we were on a roll wow so now tamir never appeared on that record it was all diana it was all diana yeah yeah I, i'm trying to think of tamir it was it tamir handelman yeah that's it tamir handelman. Handelman. yeah 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 real talented guy yeah great great pianist wow so you know what i i, I only know and and i may be you know, devoid of more information, but um, one soundtrack that you did with the 
Glenn Carey. Um, Glenn Carey, Glenn Ross. Glenn Ross. Uh, now, this is so cosmic, if I can use a 60s expression, that, that uh, you say that because I could not find this album anywhere. Could not find it. And then I just happened to be going through Amazon one day and boom, I found they had one copy at this place somewhere in, I don't know, Arizona or wherever it was. And I got it. And uh, I was absolutely blown away. I hadn't heard this album in 15 years. Yeah, I have a copy. <laughs> I'd lend you mine. <laughs> well, no, I've got, I, I was able to get it. I was able to find it. And, and uh, you know, the two cuts in particular, I really, to me, it's, it's one of, I think it's one of the best things I've done. Really? Yeah, I love that. I, love and, that uh, uh, I think the thing that was interesting, and uh, I guess what made it come out the way it did, is that the very nature of the, of the project, the, the, the movie, which is 95 or 98% dialogue, and, 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 you know, with the exception of the credits in the beginning and at the end, whatever music that I did was played at low level on, uh, on a jukebox in a Chinese restaurant. <laughs> so, you know, but the fact that I knew that and, and it wasn't like I had to fill cues with songs. Right. I just had to worry about, and, and we got, you know, Wayne who did, did a beautiful job on the, on the, uh, um, the, the, you know, the, the beginning and end credits. Yeah. Uh, but then I was able, I didn't have to worry about, because none of the other music was basically heard. And if you, if you recall on the album, it's called, you know, music from and inspired by the motion picture. Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross. Uh, uh, so <clears throat> I just picked people that I wanted to work with, people that I wanted to do things with. And I picked, Songs like, uh, you know, Street of Dreams, because people thinking about, you know, they're going to build a dream house. And uh, uh, maybe the only song I did, which I wanted to do, because I wanted to do it with Shirley, was You Better Go Now. That didn't have anything to do with, uh, you know, uh, the, um, the movie, yeah. uh, you know, with, with the film. Yeah. But, um, you know, Daydream and uh, uh, Easy Street and uh, these guys thinking they're going to make a, you know, a killing on, on, uh, on, on you know, what they were doing. But the two cuts that absolutely blew me away when I put, put it on was, and I, and I could kick myself in the ass for not putting it on his album, was Street of Dreams uh, with Jimmy Scott. Wow, yeah. That, that, I, I just I couldn't get over it. It's just how the performance that we captured was just beyond belief. It was one of the best things... Uh, you know, it would have been the best thing on, on, on his album if I would have put it on. And there would have been a problem. I just, I don't know what, why I didn't think of it. Whether or not it was because, uh, you know, the album was on Sire. <clears throat> this one was on, I did them. I did it all at the same time. I knew I was doing the, the album. I, was, I knew I was doing the soundtrack. So when I was doing Jenny's album, I just added it in with, with uh, you know, because I had Grady Tate and Ron Carter sure. and, and uh, Kenny Barron. But the other one was, was uh, You Better Go Now. I, I think Shirley nailed that tune because like, I, I was a huge fan of Jerry Southern. And Jerry, Jerry's the one who, who had the, the, you know, she had the quintessential version of, uh, of, of You Better Go Now. 
But I gotta tell you, man, I, I so what happened was I had only spoken to Shirley once because this is prior to me coming to uh, GRP and Verve, and and you know I hadn't really met her or worked with her. Uh, so, uh, but I knew I wanted her to do this tune, and I and I, I wanted I whether or not I was edging myself up to doing something with her. I, I just I said, man, this is she could do this tune. I know it. So I called my friend. I called Johnny Mandel. I said, John, because I knew he had done that great album with her. Uh, uh, um, here's the life. So I called him. I said, John, look, I'm, and I told him what I was doing. He actually did a few things for John. Uh, did a few arrangements for me on the album. Uh, so um, I, and I said, I, I've only spoken to Shirley once. It was a friend of mine who was a huge fan of Shirley and, and knew her, uh, uh, Ray LaFaro. And um, back in like 85, when I first moved to New York, Ray said, hey, uh, I want to take you to see Shirley Orange. She's at the, uh, at the Vanguard. I said, yeah, great. You know, I, I didn't really know that much about her. I had heard of her, but I didn't know her. Well, she killed me, you know? Yeah. So when Ray, so it turns out my friend dies and I thought, gee, it would be great to, to have her play at the uh, at the memorial so, so i got her number from john from uh, mandel uh-huh. and uh i called her <laughs> it was about one o'clock in the afternoon and i woke her out of a dead sleep <laughs> i thought oh shit I introduced myself and i said she oh it's too bad ray was a nice guy and blah blah and i said yeah i'd love for you to do this well oh, i'm sorry i can't because she was on the road she was going out you know she was actually leaving to go on the road the next day. So that was it. So then when this came up, I said, nah, you know, I, I definitely have to do this. So I called John. I got her number again, called her. Uh, I, I told her the song I wanted to do with her and she loved the song. And I said, great. So I set this whole thing up at Capitol, uh, Capitol Studio. Eh? And um, uh, we met there. And I had been told by Mandel that, you know, she loved Drambuie with a beer, with a Heineken's wash, with a Heineken's back, you know. <laughs> and uh, so I set up, I had a bouquet of flowers waiting for her, and I had a bottle of Drambuie and a, a bucket full of uh, uh, Heineken's beer. And uh, I think she was touched uh, by all the, the, you know, the attention, the care, whatever. And we talked a little bit and we spoke about, you know, the forum and, and all that a little bit. And she took a couple of, you know, blasts of uh, Drambuie and a, and a beer. And she said, all right, let's do this. And uh, boom, that was it. Wow. Fucking take. <laughs> so and, 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 I, I was so met. I was so numb by the end of the by the take. I, I just I, I hit the top. I said, Shirley, that was just absolutely gorgeous it was beautiful i said man i i you know i i think that's it you want to try another one she's well gee you know let's try it let's do another one so she did another one which was fine but it wasn't that it wasn't that magic and that was it one take bam now you know she and and you think about it the reason that she you know do you remember her bass player charles sure uh uh well charles you know charles was a when he wasn't on the road with Shirley, he worked for his family's mortuary. <laughs> he was an undertaker, you know. He was, Charles was, you know, he was okay as a bass player. Not wasn't my favorite bass player. But 
he had he had her secret. What it was was he figured out that he had to watch her left hand because you know she did these tempos that were so uh, slow that as uh, Jim Crawl, Diana's father, once said to me, "You can make a ham sandwich between one going from one phrase to the next." <laughs> but it's the truth, man. It's like you know she took these these tempos, man. That was so slow. That was just. But that was part. Her and Jimmy Scott was the same deal, you know. <laughs> Tommy, so uh, we're going to still do that dinner date. Hey, man, I, you just let me know, babe. I'll come in. Uh, uh, I'll come into town, and you guys can come out. There's a great Jean Georges out here, you know. Okay, we're coming up. Uh, whatever, whichever way. I can meet you in the city or whatever. Sounds great, Tommy. Again, Tommy, I'll see you soon. All right, man. Take care. All right, you too. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.